I am joined by Bilal Hafiz, uh, founder of Macro Hive. Bilal, great to have you back on Four Guns. Great, great to be on. And uh, I love your show, by the way. So always happy to come on your show. Thank you, Bilal. The feeling is mutual. Uh, Macro Hive is actually a, a research partner of Forward Guidance. So for everyone listening, if you want to get discounted access to uh, Macro Hive, stay to the end for more details. Bilal, I want to start by asking you, just because we're approaching the end of the year, not about 2022, but what you see going forward. What is your general outlook for 2023? Well, if I had to sum sum it up in in one phrase, it's it's good. It's that twenty twenty three is going to be a tough, tough year for for everybody, for risk investors, for economists, for everybody. And so, although markets have rallied into year end at the end of twenty twenty two, I think that twenty twenty three is going to be difficult, if not as hard as twenty twenty two. And so, yeah, let's let's, let's dig into it. Uh, stocks. Uh, not not so great in your in your opinion yeah absolutely stocks is not not so great and uh, yeah what one kind of background reason for all of this underlying reason for this this pessimistic view is that we've had a prolonged period of very low interest rates you know close to zero for 10 15 years we've had sustained periods of qe over that period of time and now we transition from low rates to high rates you know interest rates the feds raise rates to four and a half it could go up towards five if not higher and i think we're only now starting to see the effects of that you know we had a, a big sell-off in equities when the fed initially started to transition away from zero um, then the market got a bit more comfortable with with this pace, but I think that uh, the full effects haven't been seen yet, and it, it will take some time to percolate the whole financial system. So I think there's a lot more bodies to be found, so to speak, um, as as we go through 2023. Right, and if you're you know positioned a little bearishly on equities for the next year, is the, do you if if you're right that stocks uh, do poorly on a relative basis next year? Do you think it will be for the same reason that they did poorly this year or for a different reason and why? Yeah, if you look at the performance of equities over the course of 2022, you found that a large amount of the underperformance was a derating. So I, the valuations of companies went down sharply. And that, in my view, was largely driven by interest rates going up. You know, whether it was the Fed raising rates or long-term interest rates, they shot up and then suddenly... Uh, the attractiveness of equities uh, disappeared. And so that was the big driver this on 2022 for equity weakness. What we didn't see was any sustained weakness in earnings expectations. So that didn't really happen. And I think in 2023, that will be one of the big factors that suddenly there will be a downgrade in earnings expectations. And that I think will be probably one of the larger driver of, um, of equities lower in, in, uh, in the following yeah right yeah so, so specific sectors have been hit like housing market you know if you're a mortgage broker your, your sales are, are a fraction of what they were in 2021 and 2020 but you're right like apple microsoft they continue to grow their earnings maybe not as much as they did in 2021 but the, the, they still are going up yeah how severe do you think this earnings uh recession is that even too dramatic of a word will be i mean uh, do, do you think earnings will actually go down or do you think they will have, uh, to use Jay Powell's fr- phrase, very slow growth? <laughs> very slow growth. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, <laughs> well, with, with equities, you have to remember, it's very unusual for earnings to actually go negative. You know, there are some periods where it has gone negative, but even during recessions, 
you, you see a massive slowdown in earnings and it might briefly touch negative. Um, but it's, you know, that in itself, a very sharp slowdown is like a recession for earnings. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a real chance that could happen. And one way of looking at this, if you bring into the equation inflation, is that in the last year, we've seen very high inflation. But what we haven't seen is real wages going up. So wages have picked up, but people's wage growth has been less than inflation. And so what that really means is that companies have been able to raise prices faster than their costs have gone up, like wages, for example. And so as a result, profit margins have been very, very healthy over the course of 2022, and they've been able to retain their profits. Now, next year, I think that'll be more challenging. Wages will continue to go up. And companies will find it harder to maintain their profit margins because they'll be worried about maintaining the market share. So they'll have to eat some of those costs. The margins will start to go down. And then on top of that, you have the cyclical dynamics of the US slowing down sharply, demand will fall. And in any case, the market will become smaller. So there's a couple of different dynamics there. One is margin compression on higher costs. And then the other is a decline in sales as the economy slows down. Right. So you're right that earnings, uh, it's rare for earnings to go negative. Although I think in, in severe recessions, they do. I think in 2008, earnings declined something around uh, the tune of, of 20%. Um, yeah. But in a, in a mild recession, earnings might only go f flat instead of going down. So I, my, I guess my next question is, what are you seeing, a mild recession or a severe recession? By the way, I haven't even asked you about a soft landing. If you think soft landing is in the cards, by all means, I want to hear about it. But yeah, uh, how bad do you think the economic uh, turmoil ahead of us will be? And to what degree does it, does it um, depend on you know, the Fed and the central bank respons response function? My bias is for severe rather than soft. And the market, to some extent at the moment, is pricing a soft landing for the U.S. economy. And the market is expecting the Fed to raise rates to around four and a half to five, and then for them to cut rates in the second half of next year for there to be a mild recession, equities to kind of go sideways. Um, and that, that's the base case for most people. My, my contention is I think it could be more severe. And there's really two elements to this. On the one, you have the real economy, where I think that there's still quite a lot of inherent demand in the economy. There's still this labor shortage issue. So I think the Fed will need to induce quite a hard landing to realign supply and demand, much like Volcker had to do in the early 1980s. So that's one side of the equation. Then the other side is the financial market side, which is almost decoupled from the real economy. So what's, what's, what's kind of odd about financial markets are that even though growth uh, you know, can be weak or can be strong. Financial markets just go up in any in any case. Uh, you know, after COVID, it bounced back mm -hmm. so so quickly. Before COVID, stocks had a fantastic previous ten years, even though the real economy was still struggling with the after effects of the GFC. So I think there's a lot of froth in financial markets that has still to be taken out. And another way of saying this is that there's a lot of leverage in the system in different ways, and we haven't fully appreciated where that where the excess leverage is in 2022 we've had some pockets of blow ups like crypto blew up which tells you there's some leverage there we had some unwinding in tech sector there's some leverage there as well i think private markets are particularly sort of vulnerable i think also as um, as we go through the year we'll suddenly start to see how uh, companies are able to refinance their financing um, over the course of 2022. How uh, are they able to cope with the decline in sales? Suddenly that will reveal whether they have um, enough cushions to, to deal with high interest rates. So there's all sorts of things that start to happen when interest rates stay high. And so I think that 
um, you know, on the one hand, there's a hard landing of the real economy. But on the other hand, even without a hard landing, you could still see quite significant financial market weakness. Mm. And so I know you've done a lot of work on gray swans for, for 2023. First of all, what is a gray swan? And uh, how is it different than a black swan versus a white swan? And uh, yeah, is, is, is the... Is there is a recession a, a grace one? Because I feel like everyone's talking about a recession, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, good question. You know, for me, Black Swan, uh, you know, which was popularized by Nassim Taleb, is is a, a high impact, low probability or unexpected event that happens. So something that nobody was really imagining or talking about that suddenly happens and uh, wipes people out. So that could be uh, COVID, for example, I, I would say was a black swan. Although some people were talking about the risk of pandemic, th- those people were saying that for the last 10 years. So yeah, it was not mainstream to go on. It wasn't mainstream. mainstream. It really did come say, out of the oh, blue. Oh, I'm bearish and- on stocks because of pandemic yeah. yeah yeah i mean in hindsight everybody predicted it like <laughs> yeah. like everyone predicted the global financial crisis but yeah. um you know every, everybody claims credit for those sorts of things but a gray swan is something where uh if 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 you're able to predict um a black swan then you're like a, a known entity in markets that's no longer a black swan you know because you've talked you brought it into reality mm-hmm. so if it happens at least somebody was talking about it so then at that point it becomes a gray swan so by the very fact of us publishing what we think are black swans, it becomes a gray swan because we've introduced it to the conversation. So if it was yeah. was to happen, it wasn't completely unexpected. So for us, a gray swan is is a low probability, high impact event. That's not our base case, but could we could foresee happening uh, in the next 12 months. Right. So in a year ago, inflation was a gray swan. Everyone was talking about it yeah. as a, and everyone was considering it as a, as a high impact risk. But uh, the market wasn't pricing it in appropriately Correct. given what happened. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So what are the gray swans for 2023? Yeah, so if gray swans for 2023, you know, for us, talk about soft landing, hard landing, that's not really a gray swan. I mean, because that's in the conversation. Markets are pricing us, you know, a recession. Uh, you know, some people are talking about hard landing. So for, the, for, for us, that's less interesting because there's so much conversation about that that it's not not as as big. The 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 larger ones, I think, are you know the ones we listed. You know, one was something like private markets completely breaking down next year, um, and we got a sign off that in some ways with the UK pension market that that you know had a lot of trouble a few months ago when when the UK announced a new fiscal program, um, but private markets markets completely imploding next year is, is one of our grace one events. Now, most people don't have that view. Most people say that private uh, equity firms and private credit firms have enough cash on the sidelines. They'd be able to, you know, sort of muddle through over the course of the year. But, you know, our view is that um, a lot of the leverage that's built up over the last 10, 15 years is in private markets. And one of the reasons private markets are very attractive is that they aren't marked to market. Um, so, for example, you know, this year, 2022, we have data up to the end of June or beginning of July for private equity returns. They they published the returns with a lag. Their returns are up 10%. That was a time when public equities were down 15 or 20%. So for some reason, private equity firms are saying they're the, the companies they own are have gone up in value during a period where public equity markets have cratered. And that's very unusual, that, that, that level of a gap. And so there's a mark-to-market issue there. And I think that 
uh, private equity, which is based on leverage, surely should be affected by high interest rates. And I think that in 2023, that could be a major gray swan event that private markets really dry up and, 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 and struggle. So that's one, mm-hmm. one of the gray swans. When private equity goes bust, what does that look like? Sure. You know, the in the 2000s in the global financial crisis, the, the real nexus of the crisis was anything linked to housing. So what, what happened there, you had a housing boom, then you had banks, and then you had investment banks creating lots of products linked to the housing boom. And so you ended up with these structured products like credit default obligation CDOs, which were linked in some way to subprime housing mixed up with high-grade housing, mixed up together to make make the overall credit rating look good, then lots of companies around the world invested in it. But the, the, the core of it was housing and banks combining together to create this huge leverage monster. And private equity wasn't really involved in that. So the blow up that happened really affected banks a lot and anyone who invested in the products that the banks were creating. So banks, you could say, were at the epicenter. Now, since the global financial crisis, we haven't really had a housing boom in the same way. And on top of that, banks have been so, so regulated, they haven't been the center of leverage. Instead, it's really private markets or the shadow banking system where leverage has been created. Now, private markets specifically, say your private equity company, what they've done is they benefited from low interest rates in order to be able to build up their capital. And then they're able to borrow at low interest rates and buy, buy up companies and take them private and then you know, clean them up and then sell them five years later. So there's been a massive growth in these assets. And now, if, if, if they start to struggle... Uh, what will then happen is whoever invested in them will also start to struggle. Now, who's the biggest investors in private markets? It's actually pension companies. So, for example, CalPERS, for example, in the US, the California pension fund. Uh, insurance companies are, are huge investors in private markets. So what would happen is that you'll see uh, private markets you know, s- struggle a lot. Then suddenly you'll see pension and insurance companies come under, under pressure. Um, and that's interesting because that suddenly hits a certain demographic in the country. Retirees suddenly will get worried about why was my pension company investing in these pension in these private equity firms that are are weakening. So, in some ways, it's a bit different to the global financial crisis where you had banks, and if banks go down, the whole system goes down. With private markets, it may not necessarily cripple the whole financial system. Instead, it will it'll hit. Uh, the, the the reaction will go through whoever's invested in them and it'll hit certain demographics who would then could then have a sort of a political consequence uh, to that. Mm, right. So um, because interest rates were so low to meet their return goals, pension funds, insurance funds, uh, what, what you said, uh, invested more in private markets, more in private equity, which has performed very well um, since the great financial crisis. If those private markets funds do extremely poorly, then they will have trouble. But how systemic do you think it is? I'll give you an example. The the banking system blow up in 2008, very systemic. You know, we had a slow recovery for years after, um, some could even say dec- you know, a decade after, still because of that banking blow up. The blow up in crypto that we've had this year, so far, it seems like the uh, contagion within crypto is big, but the cont- contagion outside of crypto is not that big. You know, no one at JP Morgan or Goldman Sachs right now is uh, is sweating because of something that happened in crypto, unless it's in their personal account, which is actually a lot more <laughs> common than you think. Um, but uh, yeah, so, so, so how systemic would a blow up in private equity be? My sense right now, at least, is I don't think it will be that systemic because banks aren't 
you know, aren't the center of that system. You know, it's, it's, it's all happening outside of the banking system, you could say. Banks have some exposure through some of their divisions, underwrite some of the loans, so there could be some impairment there. But in general, yeah. banks are so heavily regulated that I don't think it will be so systemic. And instead, um, I think it will be more, more ab- about the, who are the losers in that situation. And there could be a possibility of a, a public bailout of pension funds, for example, that's what happened in the UK when the UK uh, LDI, uh, liability-driven investments or pension funds, uh, really started to lose money when the UK had this fiscal event. There was an intervention by the central bank to stop those pension funds from going down, going under. So it's not systemic in the sense of bringing down the financial system and messing up everyone's balance sheets, but it's a risk in the sense that it will hit uh, important segments of the population that might require a government bailout to protect people's retirement pensions. So the balance sheet impact could end up being on the public sector. So the public sector's debt might start to deteriorate as they underwrite uh, the, the pension funds that are uh, underperforming. Right. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think the uh, invention, in, intervention into the uh, liability-driven investment in September, October, that was the Bank of England, so a monetary authority, providing a liquidity backstop uh, rather than just giving money. Like I think if, if, a, gov- if a government as the elected officials bail out a pension, that means they're the, the taxpayer is taking the losses. Whereas with a central bank, it's a little bit different, right? Correct. Yeah. I mean, in the case of the UK, there was a central bank intervention for a limited time period. Um, and then there was a, a government underwrite. You know, the government did say that certain losses, they'll take the first loss on it. As it happened, market stabilized. So that wasn't activated. Um, so, you know, at some point, the first response obviously will be the central bank because that's the you know the easiest place to uh, for for an intervention to occur. The difference, though, is that in the case of the UK, the the instruments that were affected by uh, by the fiscal event was gilts, was government bonds themselves. So it was much easier for the central bank to intervene to buy gilts because that was the instrument that was blowing up. If it's private equity investments that are blowing up, then it's much harder for the central bank to justify an intervention. Um, because you're not buying treasuries. You'd have to somehow make whole the, the losses on the underlying uh, equity uh, companies that, that are, are losing. So there would likely have to be some kind of federal or state intervention in that case. Yes. Uh, thank you for letting me know about the UK government. I actually I didn't know that they had that backstop, a, a fiscal authority, not monetary authority. Um, thank you for that. And then, yeah, also very hard for a central bank to bail out private equity and buy bespoke securities, things that don't have a QCIP loans. I mean, when they, quote, bought high yield credit, they, they bought it through BlackRock. And they, I think they did like they had made a custom index. So I don't know if people can make a custom index of, um, you know, floating rates, uh, securities that are owned by uh, investment alternative managers. Yeah, exactly. Who is financing these, these private equity things? So like, you know, I'm a private equity company. You're I'm trying to buy, you know, your um, you know, you know, family business. So I, I levered up, uh, so I borrow money to, to buy your business. Uh, who's giving me the money? Cause you said banks weren't that involved. I know they are, they are somewhat involved. Um, like they're definitely billions of dollars, tens of billions of dollars of, of loans on their balance sheets. It, it, it all becomes quite circular after a while, because what, what happens is that the private equity firm, 
um, or some private sort of financial institution will need to raise some debt, uh, like a leveraged loan, a bank helps them raise that debt. Now, who's lending? Um, it's not the bank directly. It's, it's other asset managers. So you'd have maybe a, a large asset manager, or it could be another pension fund or insurance company that says, look, I'm willing to offer that loan because I'll get a high return. Uh, to the private equity company um, in, in order for them to, you know, make make the acquisition. The private equity company then uses that debt, takes that uh, company private, um, and then does its magic to try to improve the performance of that. Um, and then there's an investor in the private equity fund, you know, who could also be a pension fund. So pension fund could be on both sides. It could be one part of it could be doing the lending and another part could be doing the investing. Um, or it could be an insurance company. Um, but a lot of this is off the off a commercial bank's balance sheet or not it's not on the bank's balance sheet it's basically on asset managers balance sheet so everyone's kind of lending and and investing in, in each other it's it's a bit like if you think about uh, a public company like uh, like apple mm-hmm. um uh you know who buys a stock in in apple it's probably a large asset manager you know it could be an index tracker but then who owns the corporate bonds of apple so apple issues debt every year who owns that? It's probably the same asset manager. It's just their, their bond fund would own an Apple corporate bond. And then the equity fund, equity part of the asset manager would own the equity in Apple. But in, in that scenario, it's not a bank uh, who's lending. It's, 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 it's the investor who's doing the lending and they're doing buying as well of the equity. Right. And what types of investment firms are buying them? You, you said pension plans, but uh, to what degree are the same firms that are, are private equity firms buying the debt of other private equity firms to finance the other private equity firms' deals. So if, if I have a private equity firm and you have a private equity firm, I have a department called actual private equity leverage buyouts. And then I also have alternative asset management uh, or credit management where I basically buy loans and manage those loans. So I could buy, I could lend money to you so you could do your, you have the exact same thing. <laughs> I lend money to you, you do your private equity deals, you lend money to me, and it, it works like magic. To what degree is you have that sort of relationship? Yeah, I mean, I think certainly what you have seen over the last five, six years is that companies that were pure private equity firms have started to add uh, credit to to their operations. Now, on the credit side, it's not often that would they, they would lend to other private equity firms. Typically, they would directly lend to companies themselves. So they'd, you'd, you'd, you'd have private loans to you know, some company in the Midwest or something. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, so, so that's more likely to happen. Um, what you do have, though, is when a, uh, when a private company has an exit, so they basically want to s- sell the company that they bought a number of years ago, they often sell it to another private equity company who then buys it off them. And so there is this chain reaction that occurs there because as long as you have a buyer, you're, it allows you to have your high valuations. But if everybody is, is dependent on uh, low interest rates, then suddenly the, the, if you look at the end of the chain, everybody's going to be hit one by one. They're all kind of connected to each other. Right. So we talked about the one part of private markets, which is private equity, with borrowing money to buy another company. And it's typically a late stage company that's you know making money or at least has revenue. Uh, the other part of the private markets is venture capital, where you have a bunch of people who start a company in a garage. You know, may not have revenue. It uh, may not have revenue until twenty twenty. You know, uh, years out. But you're investing in the dream. You're investing in the te- technology associated with Silicon Valley. Uh, 
to, to what degree do you think that part of private markets will uh, experience a similar amount of pain and in what, might, what way might it be different from private equity? Yeah, I think the VC space, I think, is already feeling a lot of pain and that will continue to feel a lot of pain going forward. It's much less systemic, though, because typically larger established uh, companies like pension funds, insurance companies aren't necessarily massive investors in VC. Um, so VC, you know, may attract a lot of their money from high net worth individuals, family offices. So it's it's kind of lower down in the, in the you know, asset accumulator sort of food chain, so to speak. Um, so it's less, it's smaller market, it's a much smaller mm-hmm. market as well. Um, you do have some large players who do VC type investments like SoftBank in the Japanese sort of firm. But in general, the investors and players are much smaller. So the systemic side is less. Um, in terms of VC specifically, I think already it's going through a major, major correction because a large part of VC is in tech and tech has been hit massively. And now if you look at uh, the amount of money raised for VC in the last few months, it's collapsed. Valuations on uh, each round, like um, uh, A round or B rounds have collapsed as well around VC companies. And you know, the data is much patchier, but my conversation with VC companies and startups, what, what seems to have happened is there's a shift in mentality. Before, it was all about uh, how how fast can you grow your company? It was about your vision. Now, today, it's more realistic. It's now saying, are you making a profit or not? What's your cost base like? You know, when will the money come in? It's, it's, it's a much more realistic conversation that's happening with all of these companies, these startups. So there's already a huge change going on in VC where it's gone from, you know, like sell us your dream, you know, to now what's the reality? You know, what's your cost base? Are you cash flow negative or not? When will you go to market? Um, what's your cost of acquiring customers? So it, you, it feels a bit like the dot-com collapse where you had the dot-com back in the 2000s where anything with dot-com would, would do well. Uh, but now suddenly it's like, do you have a real business or not? Yes, the, the old buzzword used to be TAM, total addressable market. And I think the new buzzword is path to profitability. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I like that. Yeah. yeah. So, so Bilal, that's we talked about one gray swan, private markets. What are some other gray swans that you have on your radar for 2023? Um, well, that that was uh, kind of almost like a macro type uh, event. We have more of a micro one, which is, and again, gray swans, remember, are not necessarily our best, our base case. It's more of a risk for, for the next year. This one is uh, more on the company side. So this is something I wrote, actually, which was that I think there's a, a Grace One event could be that Disney buys TikTok. And the, the kind of the case there is that Disney is in trouble right now. They've recently had a change of CEO. So Bob Iger, who was their star, superstar CEO, who stepped down in 2020, he's come back in to run the company, replacing Bob JPEG. They had a terrible recent quarterly earnings where Disney Plus, their streaming service, is hemorrhaging money like crazy. And so suddenly investors are getting worried, shareholders are worried. And so there's new management. Well, Bob Iger's come back. And I think one of the challenges Disney has is that, uh, number one, uh, they've got a cost problem. You know, Disney Plus, we worked out the numbers and they make around $4 per person on the, on the Disney streaming service uh, per month, uh, whereas it costs them $20 a month per user to create the content. So they're, they're burning cash 
but not re- on really expensive shows. I mean, I, I, I have Disney Plus and you can see the amount of money they spend on some of these shows is just off the charts. Um, but they're not generating enough revenue to sustain that. Um, so they have a, this, this problem with sort of Disney Plus. And if you look at Bob Iger, his style of management is to buy companies. Um, so he bought Marvel, uh, you know, he bought Pixar, um, he bought Fox. So that's his way of getting out of trouble. And so my, my kind of suspicion is he might go for another acquisition. And the two areas that uh, Disney's weak in, one is video games, um, so they're weak on that side, and the other one is social media. And TikTok, I think, is, you know, it's a video platform. You know, Disney can do a lot with that. Um, On top of that, the US is trying to uh, stop TikTok from, it's a Chinese company, from being in the US. So why not, why not, why doesn't uh, ByteDance sell TikTok to um, to uh, to Disney as uh, as a way of dealing with uh, U.S. politicians, um, and then Disney would acquire a video uh, platform which people spend hours and hours on. So, so that that's it's it's highly speculative. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know if it will happen, but I think that could be an interesting fit for them. That's interesting. What do you think about the valuation? How how would uh, Disney finance that? Given I just looked, Disney's market cap is like 170 billion dollars, and as of the most recent financing, ByteDance, the company that owns TikToks, was valued at $300 billion. So do you think the valuation of ByteDance you know, goes way, way down? Yeah, I mean, I think the valuation is going to be a, a sticking point. Um, but you know, if we do have this constellation of US regulators saying that TikTok US may be banned, uh, ByteDance might be forced then to to have to sell it at a distressed par- price. So that's one one side. Um, valuations today also are, are very difficult to 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 determine, um, especially Chinese valuations. So I'd be cautious on that. The other side is that Disney has a lot of debt. They they issued a huge amount of debt to buy Fox. Um, so they do have a problem on their side, on on the financing side. But if they were, for example, to cut back some of their spending on Disney Plus um, and uh, use some of that. Uh, you know, to to sort of acquire TikTok, I think there could be a, a path for them to to do that. Okay. Uh, do you have any other macro grace wands before we move on to central banking? Yeah, the we did actually have a positive grace one as well. Okay, uh, I'm all so it, it's it's easy to be on on the negative side. The positive one is that um, we end up with peace in 2023. So. We've had a lot of bad geopolitical news in 2022. Obviously, the Russia invasion of Ukraine. We've had increasing tension between the US and China. Um, and and uh, those are kind of the two main axes of, of trouble that we've had. But we could have a scenario, and this is a great one again, it's not our base case, that for some reason, Russia may step back from their assault on Ukraine. And then Ukraine may also you know, come up with some kind of compromise. There is already some pressure from the US for you know, some... Uh, you know, some path for peace between the two. So you could have a, you know, some uh, de-escalation of that side. Then on top of that, you've had this uh, increased aggression um, or escalation of uh, US-China relations, especially on the limitation of uh, exports of AI chips to China. But maybe that's the peak fight between the two regions. You know, both sides need growth. Uh, U.S. will be slowing down next year, thanks partly to U.S. Uh, high U.S. interest rates. So they do need some Chinese growth. China also needs growth as well. So and they're reopening as well. I think part of the problem over the last 
last two years between countries, it might, it might, sound, might, might sound trivial, but I think the fact that people physically, leaders haven't physically been meeting each other, I think has been a problem in terms of escalating tensions. But if you do see more physical meeting between Biden and Xi, they may sort of see a de-escalation there. So, so that's one kind of gray swan that we get peace next year. And then that then leads to a much more positive market outcome. Yeah, I'm uh, certainly hoping for for that, Grace Wand. What's your what? What do you think about China? Uh, I mean, I guess we can talk about just the risk assets, the stock market there, the imploding real real estate bubble, um, and also what what is your sort of economic outlook there? Because things look very grim, and I guess it depends on China's zero COVID policy, uh, which it has been you know been doing um, since the pandemic and. That is, you know, a real hindrance to growth. Now we're hearing rumors that that China COVID policy may need be no more. Uh, how do you think about this? And and yeah, I mean, in general, when you when you hear sort of a macro rumor that's just spread on Twitter, how do you, you know, as a macro investor, go about ascertaining whether it's true or not, and whether to act on it? Yeah. Well, for China, I would say you have to disentangle two things. One is the structural growth story of China, which I think is very negative. Uh, China is a classic story of an economy that's leveraged up too much. It's It's got too much debt and they've got not enough investment opportunities and they haven't uh, allowed the consumer to really build up enough wealth to offset bad investments. So they have like serious um, structural problems. So the structural growth trend in China is very, very negative. So that's the trend. But within the business cycle, what we've had within China is that because of zero COVID, cyclical growth has been very, very weak for the past two years. And I do think China is reopening right now. And so when you go from uh, a closed economy, like shut down zero COVID to an open economy, that will necessarily lead to quite a strong bounce back in growth. So I think we're in that phase right now. I think China is reopening. We've already seen announcements of uh, uh, lifting of restrictions, much less testing of, of the population. So something is happening here. They are really opening opening up. Now, how do we how do I know this? How do I know how to act on this? Um, well, within our team at MacroHive, we have someone in Hong Kong. So they kind of tell us, at least from the Hong Kong perspective, what's happening. I personally have lots of contacts in Beijing and Shanghai. I've traveled there many, many times. I can ask them what's happening on the ground. Um, and so you get a sense from the buzz on the, on the street of what changes are happening. And there is something real is happening there. People are able to leave their apartments. They don't need to get tested every few days. Um, it, it, it's, it's like night and day between the two. So I think we are going to have this cyclical recovery in the next few months where there'll be a big pickup in Chinese growth. But how long that lasts is less clear cut uh, for two reasons. You know, One is that China is not heavily vaccinated, so we could see a surge in deaths. We saw that with Taiwan when they went from zero COVID reopened they had a surge in deaths. So we're, we're going to have that, and that could slow the reopening down. Then the other side is that private households' balance sheets are not very strong. You know, in, in the Western economies, people were given checks by the government, which made them richer over, over, over the lockdown. So when you had the reopen, you initially had people, you know, going from not buying anything to buying something. And it, then it persisted because they had a lot of savings that they could just throw mm -hmm. throw and buy, buy things. Now, in China... Um, they'll go from nothing to shopping, but how long that shopping will last is less clear because they haven't built up these massive savings. So, so there are some 
some kind of limits to how much China can rely solely on on moving from zero COVID to something. Um, so, so for now, I think there's, there there will be a reopening kind of recovery. How long it will last, I'm, I'm not so sure. Thank you. I, I've just got a question that may, may be a little too simple to answer, but if China is running this massive uh, trade surplus, so it has more dollars, it, it, it sells more stuff than the bias, essentially, if, with regards to, to foreign nations, uh, and the domestic population has a very high savings rate, you know, they save uh, a large percentage of what they earn, it seems like there should just be, you know, cash all around China. There's tons of money to, it seems like there, sh- there shouldn't be a problem of, of not enough money. So wh- where did the money go? And why, why, do you, why did the debt need to be so big to finance these things? Wouldn't they have the money? Yeah, no, that, 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 that's a great question. You know, um, what, what that means is when a country has a trade surplus like China does, and uh, you know, there are other countries that have trade surplus, what that means is that there's not enough demand domestically, that they, that they don't have, they, they're producing a certain amount of stuff. There's not enough demand domestically to take all of that stuff. So then that excess production ends up going to the rest of the world. So China ends up exporting, uh, requiring the US and European markets to export their stuff. So that tells you there's not enough sort of domestic demand uh, to, uh, to absorb all of this production. Um, the other side of this is that, as you rightly point out, it means that the country has excess savings um, because they're not spending all of that savings on stuff. Um, and what's happened in China, I mean, I'm, I'm simplifying this, but over the last 30, 40 years, um, is in essence, what the government has done is it's basically forced households to save uh, too much at very low interest rates. And then companies take those savings and invest in uh, production at very attractive rates, which allows them to produce stuff um, at low prices and export. So in essence, the, the private households in China have been forced to lend money at very you know, low interest rates to companies that then use it to overproduce stuff, which then goes to the export market. In more recent years, what's happened is that they've hit the limits to how much they can export. And a lot of that cheap money has gone into uh, real estate, domestic real estate, which has then led to a bubble. So so the, the, it is true that there is too much savings um, in China. Um, the problem is that, that those savings are being forced into bad production. Um, now, that can be changed. Uh, so what should happen is that um, there should be policies that encourage people to spend on consumption. Um, now, why aren't they spending on consumption? Why are they making these savings? Partly, it's because um, uh, because they they need it um, as insurance policies because they there's no welfare system there. People have to save a lot in case they might lose their job, and in which case they they won't get any unemployment benefit. They may need to pay for the medical costs, so people kind of have this precautionary savings. Um, and it's also because people's wages. Um, uh, have uh, you know, the visibility on their wages is, is quite poor as well. So if people knew they could get higher wage growth, then they wouldn't necessarily need to save as much. Uh, so there's all sorts of reasons. But it, the, at the heart of it, it's basically China's economy is designed for production and not for the consumer. Right. So thank you for that. So if China inflation right now is actually negative, so prices are going down, and the economy is in a very uh, poor shape, it seems like a perfect opportunity for the government to print tons of money, similar to what the U.S. did in, in March and you know, early 2020. Uh, how? What are the odds of, of, of 
of you forecasting that? Because I feel like that would set off a, a huge boom in China. But maybe there's a political reason why they don't do it. Yeah, I mean, they, they over the years they have printed a lot of money. They they did they printed a lot of money after two thousand and eight, where the credit numbers went up a lot. State banks lent a huge amount of money, and the government spent a lot. So they did everything together. And what happened back then was it lent it led to a huge property boom, and then. Since then, they've been dealing with this massive property bubble. Uh, they've been, you know, and as a result, they're, they're trying to get rid of the bad debt here. So mm-hmm. the problem in China is not so much that um, uh, that there's not enough kind of money to go around. It's, it's basically that there was already too much money to go around. And what's happening now is, again, I'm being simplistic here, right. that any new money that gets created is servicing bad debt. Basically, people have invested in all sorts of bad projects and they're finding ways to continue to fund those projects. Um, and the way they do that is they borrow. And, and rather than realizing the loss, exiting from that investment to allow new money to go into new projects. Um, so this is a classic sort of balance sheet problem that com- countries have. You have a choice when you have this. You either take the loss now and take the pain, and that, that allows you to have a clean slate um, and then have credit go to new projects. Or... You close your eyes and say, look, we don't have a problem. Let's hope time will help us. And uh, and then you end up with a prolonged balance sheet problem, which is what Japan had in the 1990s and China has today. Mm. What about uh, not doing the type of money printing of quantitative easing or uh, commercial banks lending money, which you know has a liability, so it has to be paid back, but actual money printing uh, such as, you know, the, the Roman... Uh, you know, kings and queens used to do when they, they clip a coin. And I'd say the modern version of that is uh, the government borrows a ton of money and the central bank monetizes it by buying it. And then the government uses that money to hand out checks to people to buy, you know, I guess it used to be called helicopter money. Um, you know, so, so not a credit, not, not a, a reliquification of a credit bubble, but a, a true sort of bailing out of the Chinese consumer. They could, and they actually did a version of that um, at the early part of the pandemic. In certain provinces, the government essentially gave people these electronic vouchers, which are activated on their phones, which you ha- which you could only use to spend on consumption. Um, you know, when when you go to shops to buy things, and that was a very successful project. So they could do something like that. Um, I think it's unlikely at this stage they haven't talked about that yet. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, at the moment, the things they have talked about is that they had all these restrictions on on property uh, markets and lending to property. They've started to ease some of those because lots of property developers have been complaining. So the path they're taking at the moment is more about helping the distressed sector manage their debt rather than helping the consumer. So they could, and perhaps they should, they should, you know, uh, they should, in some ways, they should uh, work out all the sectors that have too much bad debt and wind them down. Um, and then at the same time, uh, provide support to people who lose their jobs. Um, that is what they kind of should do. So give them checks or something. Um, but that's not what they are doing. And they haven't talked about doing any, any, of, any of these things that uh, I've just mentioned. Uh, thanks, Bilal. Let's take a turn to the bond market. So let's talk about government bonds, maybe U.S. Treasury bonds all across the yield curve. Uh, so you know, long-term bonds, very short-term bills. Uh, what is your outlook on those bonds all across the curve? Um, and to you know, talk about the factors that influence your decision, whether it's inflation, growth, 
expectations about inflation and growth, uh, the central bank response function, risk appetite, equity performance, sort of, yeah, what, what, what's your view and why? Sure. At the moment, given that we are in a period where central banks are moving the interest rates a lot, they're raising interest rates or cutting interest rates, we're in that zone. I like to split uh, bond markets into the short end. So, you know, two-year bonds, you know, which, which really capture, for example, in the case of the US, what the Fed will do in the next few years. And then the long end of the curve, which is the 10-year part of the curve, um, which is based on you know, other factors. So for me, in general, say for the US, my bias is that two-year interest rates could go up um, in the next, say, six months or so. And the reason I say that is that the market is pricing uh, that the Fed will cut rates next year. And I think that's premature. I think there's scope for the Fed not to cut rates next year or for the Fed to end up going above 5%, which is what the market is pricing. So the front end of the curve, I think, is is too low. The yields are too low because I think the market is underestimating how much the Fed will raise rates or how likely is the Fed will remain on hold rather than cutting rates. So I think the front end of the curve, you know, not just in, 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 in the US, but also in Europe as well, and even Japan, I think there's a lot of scope for that to go higher. Um, now, the long end of the curve, you know, the 10-year or the 30-year, uh, that's where it gets a bit more tricky, you know, because if front-end interest rates go up, then all interest rates should go up. But um, if, if they do go up more than people expect, then that usually means that you're going to get much weaker growth further down the line, which pushes down long-term interest rates. Then on top of that, um, what we're seeing is there's still significant demand for treasuries, interestingly enough, from international investors. So for all the concerns about US inflation or for uh, US debt dynamics, international investors like to hold treasuries as a safe haven asset. So there's almost been record buying of uh, US treasuries from foreign investors um, since the middle of uh, 2022. So there's this kind of consistent demand for treasuries, which tells you that there's lots of investors in the world that are a bit worried about the state of financial markets. So they want to hold treasuries. Um, so, so, so that's, you know, another factor that could keep longer term interest rates where they are today, which is around three and a half percent, or, you know, it could go a bit lower. So that tells you that the curve could invert further. Now, the one caveat through all of this is inflation, which you know, we could have a scenario where uh, the Fed doesn't do as much as we think they should do. So inflation really starts to go higher or the Fed kind of loses credibility on inflation. Then you could see the opposite scenario where short term interest rates don't go up that much, but long term interest rates shoot higher. As the market says, the Fed's losing credibility on inflation. So that's a, that's another path that we could go on. Uh, but my bias is more I probably have a higher level of conviction on the front end of the curve. Um, than the long end. But my bias would be that, uh, you know, the front end's uh, price, the yields are priced too low. Mm. And what is your outlook on inflation over the next year? Uh, it's been f falling, you know, pretty, sh pretty sharply in the US, a lot of that due to falling energy prices. You know, on inflation, it has been falling, uh, at least in, it looks like June was the peak in inflation. 
I do think that it will continue to fall next year. Consensus is also looking for inflation to fall. So that's not an original view. But I don't think it will fall as much as what most people are thinking. So the Fed and markets are, and the consensus of economists are looking for headline US inflation to go down to about two and a half or 3% by the end of next year. I think that will probably be a bit higher than that. So it will fall, but maybe it might settle around 4%. And the reason I say that is if you look at what has caused inflation to fall uh, recently, at least, a lot of it is goods. So um, energy, food has, has fallen. Goods prices have fallen a lot, primarily thanks to a collapse in the price of used cars. But on the services side, there's been less of a decline. So core services is still 5 to 6%. It's still relatively high. Now, we do know over the next 6 to 12 months, rents are going to come down. And so that will start to drive services inflation lower. But the rest of services inflation is is driven by wages in general. Um, And there still seems to be quite a lot of wage growth in the US economy, which will end up making inflation stickier than probably we all think. And so the labor market becomes more important. And that's why the Fed's looking at the labor market, because we, we have this strange dynamic in the labor market where some parts of the labor market look... Um, look like there's too many people employed. And there's other parts of the economy where it looks like there aren't enough people. There's a labor shortage. And the reason for that is COVID was a very unusual shock insofar as it forced a rebalancing of the economy. It shut down the economy. It stopped immigration. And it essentially made everybody uh, stay at home, not use services anymore, and basically buy goods through Amazon. And so suddenly you had this overheating goods part of the economy and and, uh, underused services. Now we flip the other way where... Uh, companies basically had a supply bottlenecks. They ended up buying massive inventory on the goods side. Now they're dumping that inventory, um, whether it's cars or stuff at Walmart and Target and so on. So you get a lot, lot of discounts there. So good prices are collapsing. But the services side, you still have this issue where um, the number of people employed in the service sector, things like nursing, uh, hospital workers, plumbers, electricians, hotel workers, restaurant workers, there's less people employed in those sectors today than before COVID. So there's been this disappearance of people from the labor market there. Um, and there's actually too many people. There's more people employed in tech, financial services and warehouses today than there was before COVID. And tech, financial services and warehouses is, is where you're hearing about layoffs right now. There's, people are cutting. But on the other side, you know, nurses and all these other areas, there's a labor shortage. Mm-hmm. Um, and so because of this weird situation we have in the labor market that tells you that you know we probably still don't have enough people working and at least that part of the economy will still keep generating higher wages which will be a problem for the fed and services inflation you know going forward right what about energy prices which are a very big driver of inflation at least in the short term because they are so volatile you know oil and natural gas exploded higher earlier this year uh, as russia invaded ukraine uh, since about you know early summer late spring they've you know early summer they've been falling um in some cases quite sharply like i actually think one time during the day in europe intraday natural gas traded negative just because it was so uh un- un- unseasonally warm um in, in the fall but uh it's getting colder it's cold in new york and i'm you know probably cold where you are too um, yeah, how, what is your outlook on energy? Let's just, you know, oil and natural gas. Let's start with that. And, and, and by all means, feel free to focus on Europe where a lot of this uh, centers. 
Yeah, I mean, I think certainly energy prices have, have really fallen quite sharply over the last six months. And, and then when you look at euro and euro changes, they've been like, it's really collapsed. And that's definitely helped inflation fall a lot. Um, and because of base effects, that's going to continue to have a downward pressure on inflation going forward. But fundamentally or structurally, there is a supply demand imbalance. There's not enough fossil fuels um, in kind of in production, you could say, as as is needed. And so structurally, we know there's not enough new oil being discovered or produced. There's been underinvestment in that sector. So that tells you structurally, there's this upward push on both oil prices and nat- natural gas prices. Um, you know, of course, Russia's kind of offline, but kind of isn't and isn't. It's selling its gas to, to the rest of the world uh, through Asia rather than Europe. Um, but structurally, there's a supply problem. So that tells you there is this underlying push for both oil and nat gas prices to go up. Um, however, um, in the short term, what we've seen is that we've seen um, kind of an overstocking of energy, you could say, after Russia. So everyone kind of overbought everything. And then you had the US SPR release. So the US released a lot of oil into the market. Europe bought a huge amount of nat gas um, and then ended up with a mild winter, which led to them holding too much. Um, so we've had these short-term factors that have kind of pushed uh, energy prices lower. But looking ahead, I think that side of the picture will start to turn because as we go into 2023, <clears throat> Europeans will need to restock for the coming year. So they'll come back into the market, start to buy nat gas again. We have China reopening that will introduce more demand for oil as well. Um, so that will sort of drive oil prices higher. So my base case is on energy prices that we've seen a big drop already. Um, and I think we're probably at some kind of turning point where we could start to see it go back up over the course of 2023. So you think oil demand, natural gas demand will might go up in 2023, even though you know, the yield curve is extremely inverted and you forecast what you said was a severe recession. You know, when I hear the word severe recession, that hmm. tends to be a, a time when commodities perform abysmally. Uh, I think in 2008, you know, the price of oil collapsed from $120 to, uh, you know, maybe a third or a fourth of that. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, in terms of, it, it's probably a question of timing. I would say the first half of 2023, was probably the point where you will see this uh, increase in demand. Uh, partly in the case of Europe, it will be like government-led buying of nat gas to build up its storage. Um, and then uh, in terms of the US, the US will be slowing down in the first half of next year, but it won't be in the recession at that point. That's more in the second half of next year. But importantly, China will be picking up as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, India looks like it's fairly sort of solid growth there. And in terms of the marginal buyers of oil, you know, China, India are, are massive players in this market. It's not just the US, it's really a global market. So so what's, what's different about this cycle is that because China had zero COVID, you have this desynchronized business cycle now where mm-hmm. Europe and the US are rolling over growth-wise and entering kind of recessionary territory, whereas China is coming out of a recession in effect and starting to pick up again. And so you have this sort of desynchronized cycle and perhaps the first half of next year could be the sweet spot where you don't have enough recessionary dynamics in the Western economies, but you have enough growth on the Chinese side and stability in India to generate that excess demand for, for energy. Now, in the second half, you know, if we do see a deep recession, then, of course, everything will roll over again. Um, so, so it's probably a year of two halves then in that case. Mm. How is the economic situation uh, within Europe? I know it's different country by country, 
I think you're in the UK, you know, where would you say, would you say most countries, you know, on the, in Western Europe are already in a recession early in the recession? I know you said China is coming out of a recession. Um, cause if the U S uh, officially is not in a recession now and, you know, likely to enter one soon ish. Uh, but I think Europe probably already in a recession. Yeah. Where, where is, so if, 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 if uh, China is ahead of Europe and, uh, America is behind Europe. Where is Europe in terms of uh, economic cycle? Yeah, Europe, I mean, there is an issue of how we define recession because even the US technically had a recession in the first half of 2022. Um, and Europe at the moment, certainly GDP growth is falling a lot. So on growth numbers or expectations of growth numbers, it does look like Europe will, both the UK and Eurozone will uh, are at the start of a recession or will be in a recession in the first half of next year. The problem is that um, it's it's an odd type of recession in the sense that the labor market numbers, even in Europe, are still very strong. You know, so unemployment rate hasn't shot up, even though growth has been falling, which is what we saw in the first half of the US. So even though technically speaking, Europe is on the verge of a recession or in the middle, the UK is kind of at the beginning of one, um, in, in the more broader definition of recession, n- none of these countries are in a, in a recession yet because the unemployment rate hasn't shot up. This goes back to the labor shortage issues, you know, where, you know, we've, we've almost seen a decoupling between the labor market and growth numbers, mm-hmm. um, you, just because of the imbalances in labor markets. Um, um, but in terms of a growth cyclical side, um, Europe is definitely closer to a recession than say the US is or, or China is. So Europe is closest to a recession, then it's the US, and then it's China that's, that's actually coming out of a recession. How high do you think the European Central Bank, ECB, will hike rates by? You know, at what point will they pivot? Uh, as well as we can talk about the Bank of England, which I, I think this morning hiked uh, by 50 basis points as well. Yeah, I think on the ECB side, um, I think they'll probably go up towards around 3%. You know, the market is pricing a bit less than that. Um, and I think there has been this greater focus within the ECB to bring down inflation because the initial response to inflation was that it's all about energy and gas, so we don't need to worry about it. But they are getting more worried now that it could be broadening out to other parts of the economy, not least because there's more and more evidence now that wages are picking up in countries like France and Germany. You know, there's a, a lot of wages in France and Germany are settled kind of by unions. And it takes time for them to reset wages. But it looks like 2023 could be a year where lots of wages get reset much, much higher. So I think the ECB wants to get ahead of that. And so they'll probably end up raising a bit more than what the market's pricing. Okay, thanks. And Bank Bank of England? Bank of England, um, I think, is probably overpriced. I think they probably will end up going to around 4% or so. Um, I think the issue in the UK is that the growth trajectory is much worse than for for uh, eurozone strangely um and that's because of all sorts of different reasons um uh, but part of it is brexit of course mm-hmm. and then and part of it also is um uh, is policy as well that fiscal is less supportive uh so so in the end the the growth side will be will help the bank of england uh bring inflation down because growth is already falling much more sharply than in europe Bilal, i've got some questions about the us dollar the euro and how that's uh, you know, influencing inflation dynamics as well as profitability. Um, but first, you know, bef- before we get into that, I just want to say that 
uh, we have a discount to the pr annual Prime membership of, of MacroHive, your research platform. Um, the the uh, regular price is $468 for an annual uh, subscription to Prime. Uh, but for the next two weeks, so 14 days, uh, folks who are listening to this, you can uh, get that for $280. So that's a 40% uh, discount. Um, so it's 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 quite a, a bargain. Um, I have uh, read the Macro Hive research, and uh, as you can tell, Bilal is a, a very smart person, and uh, his team is as well. Um, so there will be a link in the description uh, as well as a discount code. Uh, Bilal, tell us quickly what do people get with uh, Macro Hive Prime? Absolutely, yeah. So what what you get is. You know, uh, the team at MacroHive, we speak to some of the top hedge funds and investors in the world. And what we've done is we've created a research product that is uh, of the same standard as what we provide to the top investors, but distilled in a way that an individual investor can use. So we produce very high quality, very balanced and serious research for people, individual investors who are interested in um, where interest rates are going to go, uh, crypto markets, equity markets, which sector you should invest in. We also have an educational side as well, where we write lots of explainers, you know, what is the Baltic dry index? What is the bond duration? All of these concepts that you hear about, we, we, we break it down into much more sort of simpler terms. And the important thing is we, we tend not to be hyperbolic. We don't promise that if you listen to us, you'll make, you know, 10x returns and so on that, that people do. We, we basically are serious, you know, we, you know, fact-based way of uh, approaching markets. Yeah, uh, I feel because it's my job, I've you know, learned about bond duration and Baltic Dry Index. But if I if I had a, a day job that you know wasn't interviewing people about finance, I definitely wouldn't know what it is, and I wouldn't have time to actually you know buy a book about bond duration and, and read it. So that that sounds like a valuable service. Uh, um, so again, just audience uh, over the next fourteen days, uh, you can get forty percent off. So definitely check out uh, the annual Macro Hive Prime subscription. I made a mistake. The discount for MacroHive Prime that Forward Guidance is running is actually $220, not $280. Forgive me for making that mistake. A reminder, this deal will last for two weeks, so starting on December 22nd of 2022, ending on January 6th of 2023. We'll also try and include a sample report from MacroHive Prime so you can uh, see what it offers before you uh, consider signing up. Thanks again, and uh, let's get back to the interview with Bilal. All right, Bilal, now let's move on to the euro and the U.S. dollar. Uh, U.S. dollar roared higher uh, in the first, let's say, you know, three quarters of this year. Been a little bit on the back foot uh, in, the, in the last three months. Um, you know, a, a lot of that is, is, is attributed to the Federal Reserve. The, the U.S. has energy. I, I'm, I'm curious, before I ask you what's your outlook on the, the euro against the dollar, how much has the weak euro boosted uh industry within Europe? Because when you have a weak currency, goods are very cheap to produce. You know, so you could sell a lot of them to, to foreigners who have a very high currency. So you know, I was going through LVMH, the luxury brand's uh, earnings, and they, you know, their, their sales are up something like 7 or 8% just because they're selling in, in dollars and they're making it, their input costs are on euros. So are you seeing a, a, a boom in, in industry because the euro is so weak? Or is the recession and the economy so bad that it's, you know, it's 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 a pretty faint um, uh, glimmer in, in a, on a cloudy day. Yeah, I mean, I think the the simplest way to think about this is that uh, when you talk about European exports, you in the end you're really talking about Germany. I mean, they're they're the they're the big dogs here. They're the ones that do the most exporting. Um, so they have a massive current account surplus, uh, although it's fallen over the course of this year. Um, 
And the issue with, say, Germany is if you look at their sectors and everything, um, they are exporting, they have benefited from a weaker euro, but they've suffered a lot more because of the energy side of the equation. So that's been the big problem for Europe is that in normal times, the weak euro would have helped them a lot. But what's way, way bigger than that has been the energy bill that they're facing. So the energy bill has skyrocketed for the industrial sector in Germany, and but for all manufacturing exporters within Europe, which is crushing them. And so suddenly they're importing way, way more than they're exporting. And so that's really affected them a lot. And ironically, a weak euro doesn't help because a lot of energy is priced in dollars. And so they end up not only having to pay high Uh, dollar price of commodities, their currency is weaker, so they're buying less dollars than before. So paradoxically, this time around, it hasn't helped them. Mm, Very interesting. I'm just looking at the uh, MSCI Euro Index, and over the past year, it's only down 10%. And if you imagine if you take dividends into account, it's only down something like 6 or 7%, or 7 or 8%, uh, which is less than the S&P 500. So do you find it strange? I mean, it seems strange to me that the U.S. economy has been so much better than Europe's economy, and Europe is at the eye of the storm of the global energy crisis. But you know, how come? How come European corporates, the stocks, are, is doing so well? Yeah, I think there's there's two reasons. I mean, one is it depends which currency you're looking at. So if you look in in dollar denomination, then I think European stocks are probably doing a bit worse because euro has fallen over the course of, mm-hmm. of the year. So it's in local currency. But I think the big reason is the sector weightings that um, the U.S. is massively weighted towards the tech sector. And the tech sector of all sectors in the world is most sensitive to higher interest rates. Um, so, you know, 20, 20%, 25% of the US S&P is tech. And uh, interest rates have gone up around the world this year. And so tech has been, you know, um, significantly hit. Um, whereas Europe doesn't have as large a tech sector. Um, plus, on top of that, a lot of uh, European equity strength has come in recent months. Um, and what's helped in recent months has been that the... The the fears around the energy crisis have come abated because of a mild winter. And then on top of that, China has started to reopen as well, which has helped the European stock story. But I think more generally, it's a tech story that's really uh, driving this. All right. And what do you think about the euro currency? Uh, what's, what's your outlook on the, current, uh, the euro relative to the dollar, which will be stronger and why? In the next year. Yeah, I mean, I think in general, the dollar is expensive. I mean, the dollar has been, you know, going up for almost uh, eight, nine years now in general against all currencies, the euro and and other currencies. Um, So I think the dollar is expensive on a number of different metrics. But um, I think against the euro, there is scope for uh, further dollar strength, you know, because euro fell to around 95 over the course of 2022. We've bounced back to above 105. You know, it's a 10 big figure sort of jump higher. But I think going forward, at least for the first half of next year of 2023, I think we could start to see renewed euro weakness. Because the way I think about it is what's the balance of risks in terms of good news? You know, um, Europe's had a mild winter, which is great. China's reopened, which is great. The ECB's turned more hawkish, which is great. So all of these factors have been really, really favorable for the euro. Meanwhile, on the US side, you know, the Fed, the market perceives the Fed is pivoting. You know, people are talking about recession in, in, in the US and so on. So in terms of balance of risks, I think we could start to see a reversal, at least in the first half of next year, where a lot of the European news and Chinese news could get priced in. Uh, the Fed 
perhaps doesn't you know uh pivot um and then you have a dynamic which becomes more positive for the dollar so in general i think from a trend perspective it's hard to be too bullish on the dollar because the dollar is so expensive it's it's at multi-year you know multi-decade highs um in general um but from a shorter term perspective the balance of risks i think at least for the first half of next year is for um is for euro to go down mm. thanks Bilal, a lot of people talking about a Federal Reserve pivot evocative of uh, December 2018 and, and early 2019 when the Federal Reserve stopped hiking rates and actually you know, soon started cutting rates. A lot of people, I've noticed, have different definitions of pivot. To some people, the Fed only hiking by 50 basis points instead of 75 basis points moving down is a pivot. I'm something more of a purist. I think a, a, pivot, a true pivot is a, a stop and a, a a, a real hard pivot might even be cutting rates as, as well. So how, what does pivot mean to you? And then, yeah, what, you know, what do you think the Fed fund rate is by the end of December 2023? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Yeah, you're right. I mean, there's all sorts of different definitions of, of the pivot. I, you know, I suppose in general, people are, are trying to capture this idea that the Fed's gone from being very, very hawkish to not so hawkish. So that, that's a general, you know, kind of definition. I agree with you. I think for me, a pivot is when they stop hiking. Um, it's not them reducing the pace of hikes. That's not a pivot in my view. I think it's when they stop. It's when they signal that this is the end of the hiking cycle. Um, and then, as you say, if they cut rates even better, that's a true sort of pivot. Um, so, so that's you know the way I would define a pivot. But I think it's also valid to say that when they go from 75 basis point hikes to 50, that's also a pivot as well. So, but I think it's it's probably correct to define what we mean at the at the outset. Now, in terms of where I think it will go, I, I have to defer to our US economist in our team, Dominique Dwarfrico. She's a superstar uh, economist. She used to work for the Fed and she worked for Bridgewater and so on. And she's been great spot on with the market views. Her view, which I, you know, which which I subscribe to, is that they will end up raising rates to around seven or even eight percent by the end oh of next God. year. So oh that's an incredibly high interest rate, much higher than what everyone's expecting. Um, in her defense, and in defense of that view, I think the way I would look at this is that in the two thousands, when inflation got to around a peak of around four percent, the Fed raised rates to five point two five percent. That was a period in the 2000s when inflation was way lower than today and the unemployment rate was higher than it was today. And so given that inflation is way, way higher today, um, it makes sense for the Fed to go higher than the last, uh, you know, the, the last hike, you know. So, so uh, Bernanke went to 5.25, you know, in the 2000s. Greenspan went to about 6.5%. Um, Volcker in the early 80s went to 20%. Uh, that was the last phase of serious inflation. So somewhere seven, eight percent is is not crazy in that historical context. Of course, today it sounds crazy, but then again, at the start of twenty twenty two, four and a half, five percent was crazy. Um, yeah. So so yeah. So that's where where we're leaning. Of course, we could be wrong. Of course, but I think it's it's uh, I think it's a reasonable view to hold. Right, but you wouldn't say seven percent is your base case. You think it's it's way more possible than the mainstream. I mean, the options market is probably implying a less than one percent or very very small chance that Fed funds is uh, uh, at seven percent. But it's not your base case. It is our base case. I would say it is our base case. Yeah, it's not wow. the risk. It is the base case. Yeah, yeah. And underlying this view is this idea that. There is some genuine labor shortage issues. There's wage issues in the economy that the Fed really does need to 
you know, seriously bring down demand to rebalance the economy. And the risk is if they don't, then you end up with a late 70s, late 70s, early 80s dynamic where inflation keeps remain sticky for longer. Um, so that's our base case. I mean, it sounds crazy and it could be crazy. And, you know, in a year's time, we could be looking back at this crazy interview. But, uh, mm-hmm. but you know, I think it's not. It's, uh, it, it's, 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 it is our base case and it's, it's not as shocking as it sounds when you look at the underlying reasoning for it. Right, right. All right. Well, Bilal, uh, my final question for you is what's your outlook on, on crypto? And to what degree is, is your outlook shaped by macro factors? On crypto, my kind of take is that there was it was the source of a massive bubble in recent years. We probably haven't seen the end of uh, the unwind of lots of players in the market that did things that they shouldn't have done or were benefiting from a bubble. So I think there's a lot of froth that has to be taken out. Um, but I do think uh, coins like uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum, they're here to stay. They'll be around for a long, long time. There are some genuine use cases for them. Um, so from a longer term perspective, I think they should form part of people's asset allocation in some form or another. Um, Now, in terms of their actual path, I think that macro factors will still be a very dominant factor. If if we're in an environment where equities are struggling, then crypto will also struggle as well. So my view on crypto is similar to the equity view. Um, The crypto-specific dynamics are more around um, surprises from exchanges, you know, blowing up and such, which is obviously negative. If it doesn't, then you get a short-term boost. Uh, That's hard to predict, though. Um, But there's, there's still lots of issues. You know, we still have to see what happens to Tether you know, where they have um, assets which are backing them, but they're not audited by credible organizations. And we aren't sure, you know, if it's T-bills or not, you know, there, there's there's still a lots of issues that have to be resolved. Right. Well, Bilal, it's been a pleasure uh, having you on Forward Guidance yet again. Um, people can find you on Twitter at Bilal Hafiz123. And uh, for folks who want to take advantage of the 40% discount to the excellent uh, MacroHive offerings, uh, click the link in the description below. Uh, Bilal, uh, great talking to you. Thanks so much for sharing your insights and I uh, hope you have a, a great year. Go rest of the year. Great. Thanks a lot. You too as well. Thanks, Bilal. 